When she was 17 years old, Kristen Jane Anderson sought to end her life by laying across a railroad track as a train was approaching. Miraculously, she survived, although her legs were severed. But she was soon to realize that God had a purpose for her life. Three months after I lost my legs, I was out of the hospital, and we went back to church that Sunday. And a woman came up to me who had heard about what happened to me, and she told me that I would have went to hell if I died. And it was very difficult at the time, but I'm very grateful that she was that bold at the time because it helped me see my need for him. It helped me think about where I would have went eternally if I died. Where would I go? I never thought about it more than at that time in my life. This is Family Life Today. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. Kristen Jane Anderson joins us today to share a story of beauty from ashes and redemption from tragedy. Stay tuned. Welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us. You know, I've read the statistics about teenage suicide, about teens who overdose on a a handful of pills from the medicine cabinet or who uh, do violence to themselves in some way to take Mm -hmm. their own lives. Right. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard a story like the one we're hearing this week. Yeah. um, We have a guest with us who is willing to tell a profound story, uh, quite a drama. Uh, Kristen uh, Jane Anderson joins us on Family Life today. Welcome back. Thank you. Kristen, uh, you've written a book called Life in Spite of Me. And um, as our listeners heard earlier, uh, that really is an understatement. A lot of things had taken place in your life that had left you hopeless, right? Yes, a lot of things happened. Yeah. Your father was struggling from depression. As you grew up as a little girl and as a teenager, you had three friends as a teenager who lost their lives, one to suicide. You had a couple of guys stalking you, one who raped you, and you were hopeless and no one knew it. No, my family especially knew that something was wrong with me because it wasn't in my character to not come home when I was supposed to or I had started smoking and drinking and things like that, and that wasn't anything I'd done before. I also stopped playing soccer, and that was something that I loved to do. And so they knew something was wrong with me. They just didn't know how much was wrong inside and how I was feeling. And and you say they knew something was wrong. If if you were to look back and say, there'd been something going on in my heart and soul for a month, three months, six months, what? I think... That it was a lot going on that whole period of time, but I think the last six months before my attempt were the worst. I think I just kind of died inside. I didn't care about my life or anything anymore. I drove around hoping somebody would hit me. I I wanted my life to end. I didn't want to take it, though. People would ask me how I was doing, and I would say, I'm here, kind of like, isn't that good enough? I had a just much more negative and little bit of a bitter attitude, and that wasn't my normal demeanor. Um, But at the same time, I still had a smile on my face. So people really were confused. So here it is, the second day of the new millennium. 
January 2nd, 2000. It's a cold day. You've left the house sitting in a park just thinking about life and the impulse, really it was an impulse, hits you. Yeah, and I want to make a comment about that because I, I've, I've read this before that a number of suicides that occur among young people are done not in a sense of really thinking it through, but just deciding at the spur of the moment. Right. For me, it was, I could have never made that as a rational decision. If I was going to do it, it, it would have had to be impulsive. I, and I think that most people would think that way. I think most kids, especially, they know that suicide's wrong. They can't ever th- rationalize it enough to think it's okay or it's right. But you didn't think about writing a note saying it's all over. You didn't have time. No, I didn't have time and I wasn't worried about other people. I was in a very selfish place. So you went and laid across the railroad tracks with a train coming. Did the conductor see you dive across the tracks? Yes, the police report says that the conductor said to the engineer, did you see that yellow flash? And the engineer said to the conductor, yes, I think we just hit someone. And the yellow flash that they saw that was this yellow jacket that I had on my winter coat. It was a new coat that you'd just gotten for Christmas, was it? Or was that the jeans you'd gotten? Right. No, the coat was new. The shoes were new. The jeans, all of it was new, actually. <laughs> and and so you dove across the tracks. The conductor, the engineer said, I think we just hit somebody. They put on the brakes, brought the train to a stop? Yes, and they called 911. And came back, found you laying on the tracks, legs severed, one below the knee and the other? Well, they didn't come to find me, but the paramedics found me. Okay. Yes, but with my legs severed. And you've already shared with us this week that you were, uh, in in record time, taken to the nearest hospital in your area, uh, wheeled into surgery. Still wanting to die. Yes. And still thinking that was probably where you were headed. What's the next thing you remember? The next thing I remember is waking up in intensive care. I was in surgery all night long, but the next thing I remember was waking up, opening my eyes, trying to figure out where I was, and I saw my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my brother-in-law, all in the room with their arms crossed and their faces looking down at the floor. And I just couldn't understand where I was or why everyone looked so unhappy. And then my mom ran to the side of my bed, and she said, Oh, honey, we're so glad you're okay. And I remembered what had happened the night before. And I said, Mom, they cut my clothes and they cut my coat. And she said, oh, honey, it's okay. We're just glad you're here. We can get you new ones. Don't worry about that. She couldn't believe that I said that. But I also wasn't thinking about the fact that I'd lost my legs in that moment. I hadn't really understood the reality of it yet. Were you angry at that point that you were alive? It was interesting because at this point, everyone was so happy to see me. And they were so happy that I was alive. So I had mixed emotions. I was beginning to be a little bit grateful that I lived, but I still was hoping that I would maybe slip away. So so even in that moment, your desire to die, the, the thing that had propelled you onto the tracks, the thing that was still with you when the paramedics found you, now you're recovered, your family's there, they're saying, we're just so glad you're here, and you're still thinking, I, I just want to go. I want to be done with this. 
Yeah, one of the things they've told me since then is that they were worried if I didn't want to live my life with my legs, how was I going to want to live my life without my legs? And that's kind of the place that I was in. I didn't want to live my life with all my other problems, and now I didn't have my legs. How was I going to do that? I didn't think I could do that. And and so the despair that had kind of come on you impulsively was now gripping you in terms of, of just wanting it all to be over and, and life to end. There was, there, was no, there was still no sense of any kind of hope for the future for you. It was small. It was very small. I didn't know what the future held. And I didn't, um, because I was on a lot of medication, yeah. my emotions were very numb, which was mm. good and bad at the time. Mm-hmm. It caused me not to think a lot, not to feel a lot, but I had hope more than anything in people. My hope was because people told me, there's a reason you're here. God kept you here for a reason. There's something you're supposed to do here. And that was really encouraging to me. I didn't know why he kept me here or what I was supposed to do here, but I kind of held on to that because I realized that because of how much blood I lost and because of how many cars I went over me as fast as they did, all the scientific details, I knew that I should have died, but I was alive. And that did speak some volume to me about God and his faithfulness and his goodness and his love for me. So I had, you know, a small Mm. hope that was growing. There's one more emotion that undoubtedly you had to experience because you mentioned earlier that what kind of propelled you onto the tracks was you were really thinking about yourself. Right. You didn't write a letter to your family members saying goodbye. No. I thought about them on the tracks. I thought they'll get over me or things like that. I was worried how they would feel, but I was more consumed with my own pain. But when you finally kind of came to and the drugs began to wear off, undoubtedly you began to experience some shame and some embarrassment at what you tried to accomplish but didn't. I mean, you were alive. Right. And even though God was at work in your soul, how did you handle that? It was a really hard thing for me. I actually didn't even remember laying on the tracks for a long time. People told me that the police report said it was an attempted suicide and everyone assumed that it was, but I didn't remember doing it. And so I had a really hard time accepting that for a long time, but I began having flashbacks. And eventually I had a full flashback where I remembered laying on the tracks. And that was devastating for me because I didn't want to believe that I would do something like that. But it brought me closer to God because I started crying out for Him. I, I, I knew, I just felt so broken. I was so full of shame. I was so embarrassed. I was so um, overwhelmed. But I had started to work through some of the stuff that had happened before my attempted suicide in counseling. So now I started to work through my actual attempted suicide. You said that you grew up in a home that was a church-going home and that you'd been in church, but you'd not really heard about a personal relationship with Christ. So in these times of despair and dealing with the circumstances you'd you'd lived with, what were the influences that were drawing you in the direction of God? Three months after I lost my legs, I was out of the hospital— on a weekend visit before my next surgery, and we went back to church that Sunday. And a woman came up to me who I didn't know who had heard about what happened to me. And she told me that I would have went to hell if I died. And I had never thought about that before. Wait a second. You're talking about somebody at church came up to you 
and said you would go to hell? Right. How did that hit you? It was very hard for me because I had never thought about whether or not I would have went to hell. If I'd, I, I thought about it a little bit, but not really, because everyone around me told me, Kristen, you would have went to heaven. Don't worry about it. You know, they assured me of that. But I began to worry once she told me that, that there was a chance I could have went to hell. I didn't want to just accept the feel-good answer or think naively about it. I wanted to know if I would have died, where I would have been. If I would have been in hell right then, I wanted to know it. So that's when I really started asking God where I would have went. And very shortly after that, a couple that was friends with my sister came over to have dinner with my parents and I just to encourage us after everything that had happened. And I found out that the man was studying um, in seminary to be a pastor. So I took that as my opportunity to ask someone if he thought I would have went to hell if I died. And he told me that every single one of us are created to be in a personal and intimate relationship with God. But because of our sin, because of the wrong things that we've done, we're separated from him eternally. But that's why Jesus died for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, to reunite us with God. And growing up in church, I had heard you know, I believed in God. I knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and I knew that He died for my sins, but I never knew that there was a choice I needed to make or that I was created to be in a personal and intimate relationship with Him. But when this man told me this, I knew that what he was telling me was more true than anything I'd ever heard in my life, but I didn't want to just take his word for it, so I asked him to show me it in the Bible. And he showed me a lot of different passages, but the verse that stood out to me the most was John fourteen six. And that's where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I just knew that was exactly what I needed to know. I knew that the Father was in heaven. That's where I knew I wanted to go. But I knew that I never made a personal decision to accept Jesus into my heart or my life or become a Christian. I didn't have a relationship with him. So that night, sitting on the floor in my parents' dining room, I accepted him into my heart, into my life. And from that moment forward, I know that God was with me. The Holy Spirit was inside of me and working in many ways, brought all these different people into my life. I ended up having a Christian counselor when I wasn't even seeking a Christian counselor, and she spoke a lot of truth into my life. And I went to a community college at the time, and I met this woman who just shined with more love and light and joy than anyone I'd ever met in my life. And I remember going back from meeting her one day and just saying, God, I want to know you the way that lady knows you. And what I felt him tell me was, Kristen, you have to let me be your best friend. You have to start going to me for everything. I was still going to my friends and my doctors and my parents before him. But he was the one who created me. He was the one who knew me. He was the one who made me. He knew my problems more than I did or anyone else did. And he knew the answers more than anyone else did. So I started going to him before everyone else. I started centering my life around him, putting him first. And I got involved in a really good Christian church where I started to grow spiritually. And the closer I got with him, the more... I began to experience the joy and peace and contentment and just a love for life like I had never had before. Now, what, what's the time frame from what we're talking about when it was January that you attempted suicide? And then it was March when I became a Christian, March of 2000, and I still struggled for suicidal thoughts and depression for about three years. And it was March of 2003 when I started going to that church. So my relationship with him was very immature, but I was growing in that time. I think one of the biggest reasons that I struggled in those three years with depression after my attempt was because I didn't know how important it was to be part of a 
Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, be a part of the body of Christ. I didn't know how much having Christian friends would help me. I also didn't know how real Satan was and that it was his desire to destroy me and mess with my life. And I didn't realize how important it was for me to read the Bible every single day. So I wasn't practicing a lot of things that I knew would have been helpful for me in growing my relationship with God. I find it interesting that God used a woman who came up to you and who told you you were going to hell. I mean, looking back on that, as offensive as that sounds here in this studio today, what are your thoughts about what that woman did and how God used that in your life? It was very difficult at the time, but I'm very grateful that she was that bold at the time because it helped me see my need for him. It helped me think about where I would have went eternally if I died. Where would I go? I never thought about it more than at that time in my life. Was she was she loving as she said it, or was she condemning as she, she said? She was just very frank. You know, you think of saying that to somebody who's three months out of the hospital in a wheelchair, no legs, and and just walking up and saying, you know, it's a good thing you lived because if you'd have died, you'd have gone to hell. That that just it, it is bold. Well, Some it, people would say it's it's insensitive to to say that, but you're sitting here going. No, it was it was sensitive to the real needs in my life. Yeah, I needed to hear. She could have said those words in a nicer way, but it was what I needed to hear regardless. <laughs> Kristen, in the three years from when you trusted Christ in your parents' living room, I got I got to ask you about that because were your parents sitting there as this seminary student is unveiling the gospel for you? Yes. What are they thinking? I have no idea what they were thinking. I think they were all just focused on me. They weren't thinking for themselves. They were just thinking... Maybe this will help Christian. Right, exactly. So, you, in, in their presence, did you pray that night? It was after the couple left and after my parents, you know, were in their, you know, just doing their own things. So, they didn't know that I was accepting Christ, as and I sat on the floor that Did night. you say the next day, Mom, Dad, I prayed last night to become a Christian? I didn't tell them, but I told my best friend. But you did tell somebody. Yes. And and the next three years, you continued to battle primarily because you didn't get plugged in. Is that right? Yes, definitely. I actually tried going to a number of churches, but they weren't wheelchair accessible. And I never felt like I um, fit in there, I guess, for one reason or another. But I visited this church that I ended up going to once before I ended up going back, and I knew God wanted me to go there. It was a whole year in between when I went back, and I knew that was where he wanted me to be finally. Kristen, I'm, I'm listening to your story, and, and I'm the older I get, the more aware of how many people are hurting. You've already said how many people who've read your book and have written you and have given it to other people because there are a lot of hopeless people. A lot of people who need to have hope born in their hearts like he was born in your heart. And I think what I'd like to ask you to do is just to speak directly to that person who's listening who's pretty hopeless, who needs Christ. And maybe he or she has been going to church. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they've stumbled onto this broadcast. But they need to find the one who can redeem them from hell and from their sins and have hope born in their lives. If you're struggling with 
pain in your life or with suicidal thoughts or with depression, I want you to know that there's a reason you're here, that God created you for a purpose. And no matter what you're going through, it's temporary. You're not alone. And He has tremendous plans for you. There is hope in Christ that surpasses anything in this world. He has so much hope for us. He has so many plans for us, every single one of us. Nobody is an accident, including you. There is a reason you're here. So I just want to encourage you to hold on, to seek God with all of your heart, and I know that you will find him. He will bring you out of the depths of despair like he has me. And I just want to reread that that passage that uh, was shared with you by that uh, young man who was going to seminary, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the person at the center of Christianity. He is the one who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And uh, he'll meet you at your point of despair. There is nothing you're facing, nothing you're going through, that's bigger than the God who loves you. And my encouragement to that listener is to cry out to God in prayer, a simple prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to know Jesus Christ as my Lord, Master, and Savior. And you know what? If you do that, I have it on the authority of this book, the Bible, that he'll meet you there and he will save you from your disappointments, your sin, how you've offended God, and bring you into a right relationship with God. And there are probably some things you need to do, some next steps you need to take, as Kristen's talked about here today, so that you don't find yourself spiritually stagnant. Um, and, And many of those steps are outlined in a book that we'd love to send you at no cost, a book called Pursuing God. This is a book we send out to those who are considering what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you've been in church throughout your life or not, if uh, the spiritual lights are just starting to come on in your life, call us at 1-800-FL-TODAY and let us send you a copy of the book Pursuing God by Jim Elif. It's our gift to you, and it's our hope that God will use this book in a powerful way to bring you into a relationship with Jesus and to help you walk in that relationship as, uh, as his child as you put your trust in him. You can request a copy of the book by calling 1-800-FL-TODAY. That's 1-800-358-6329. Let me also encourage you to go to our website, familylifetoday.com, and you can get information there about Kristen Anderson's book, Life in Spite of Me, Extraordinary Hope After a Fatal Choice. There are also other books we've listed on the website that talk about the issue of depression and suicide Again, go to familylifetoday.com for more information on the resources we have available. And uh, you can order online if you'd like, or again, you can call 1-800-FL-TODAY to request the resources you've heard us talk about here today. And let me also encourage you to be back with us here tomorrow. Kristen Anderson's going to join us again, and we're going to talk more about uh, her life following her attempted suicide and about the hope that she has found. I hope you can tune in for that. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, and our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Dennis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We will see you back tomorrow for another edition of Family Life Today.
Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas. Help for today. Hope for tomorrow. Hey, listen, our song. Oh, it is. I just can't believe we've been together long enough for our song to be made into grocery store music. (laughs) (laughs) Old lady. Old geezer. (laughs) Oh, look, I just hope that we're together long enough to be like them. Who? Them. I love seeing an older couple taking care of each other like that. I guess they've learned a lot about what it takes to keep things together, huh? Don't you wish that every marriage could stand the test of time? Well, you can begin your journey toward marriage longevity at Family Life's Weekend to Remember Marriage Getaway. You'll get encouragement, hope, and practical tools to build and grow your relationship. Oh, she's laughing. Oh, that is so cute. Well, I'm funny sometimes, aren't I? Learn more at familylife.com slash weekend or call 1-800-FL-TODAY. Family Life's Weekend to Remember Marriage Getaway.